Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, making the internet safer for children. It is shocking what is available online. Protecting our kids, all kids, from this kind of abuse and exploitation is what governments must do. The Trudeau government tables its long-promised bill to protect children from online danger, but will it reach too far and compromise freedom of expression? We'll speak with the Justice Minister. And... We will continue to use every tool at our disposal to support Ukraine because we are members of the United Nations. As Ukraine enters its third year of fighting a Russian invasion, is there anything more Canada or the United Nations can do to punish the Kremlin? Ambassador Bob Ray will be on the program. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The government is tabling its long-awaited online harms legislation. Known as Bill C-63, it targets harmful digital content like child exploitation, but would also address other issues like the non-consensual posting of digital images, AI pornographic deepfakes, so-called revenge porn propaganda, and the promotion of hatred or violent extremism. Hurtful acts that have real impacts, devastating impacts on Canadians, both adult and children. And to that, take a listen to the story of one mother who talked about her daughter today. With a bit of a warning here, what you're about to hear can be difficult. She says to me, that little girl is dead. All the child molesters, pedophiles, and their associates who take it upon themselves to download, view, save, and share my child's inappropriate pedophilia abuse material have taken part in murdering her. Yes, murder. She refers to it as murder because the perpetrators blatantly premeditated their motives and actions against her. And again, that was a mother speaking about her and her daughter's experience with hurtful content online. Well, Arif Farani is the Minister of Justice and the Attorney General of Canada. Minister, thank you for being with us this evening. Thank you for having me. So with this bill, you're trying to address online harms. But in order to make that happen, you have to lean on service providers here. What kind of penalties will these providers face if they miss something or fail to comply outright? So the penalties are significant, but I want to be clear that it's on the regulated entities, which would be the platforms, right? So we're talking about sort of the Facebooks, the Twitters uh, of the world. And what's really important is that the penalties that they'll face are very, very significant. So they're required in in the seven aspects of of content that we're identifying as harmful. There's an immediate takedown of the type of material that you heard uh, that Mother Jane speak about uh, just uh, on the clip that you just played, which deals with child sexual uh, exploitation material, and also a second category, which is uh, the sharing of intimate images without someone's consent. In those contexts, that material's got to come down. It's got to come down quickly within 24 hours. In respect of other areas of content, there's a requirement on these platforms to ensure that they've got a digital safety plan in place, which shows how they're going to identify risk, how they're going to moderate 
evaluate that risk and try and reduce it and mitigate it. And lastly, they have to report back as, as to how that, well that is going. If they're failing to meet the terms of their own plan, or in the first context, if they're failing to take down the material that they were required to take down, the penalties are very significant because what we're trying to drive at, and we're talking about penalties as, of as much as 6% of global revenue or $10 million, whichever is higher. And the reason why we are doing that is that we want to work with the platforms very clearly, but we also want to send a clear message that the financial profit imperative that is guiding their behaviors cannot be the sole imperative. There has to be a safety of Canadians imperative that is equally valid and that is equally prioritized. And that is what we are emphasizing with those penalties. Okay, you say you want to work with these platforms, but do you know that you'll get buy-in on this from them? There are platforms that we've been working with. It's taken us about three, three and a half years to get to this place, Michael. We've been working extensively on the bill, how to calibrate it, how to respect freedom of expression and promote the safety of individuals online. We've looked at foreign examples. We've worked with different groups and communities. We've definitely been working with the platforms all along. There are some that will undoubtedly be more willing to work with us. There are some that we may have face more challenges. But what we're saying to them is that as Canadian parliamentarians, our job is to keep keep Canadians safe. That is my fundamental job as Minister of Justice. That is what we are going to do by leveling the playing field, ensuring that trust and safety at one entity isn't at a high level versus being at a low level at another. We need to have baseline standards for these platforms in terms of attenuating risk and in terms of taking down this most egregious content, which is the child sex exploitation that literally pedophiles and sexual predators are using to prey upon our children. That's mm -hmm. got to be uncontroverted in terms of a pressing need for Canadians to address through legislation right now. Okay, so child exploitation, child pornography, obviously a, a big part of this bill, but it, it does go on to cover other areas, among them hate speech. You know, I, 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 I want you, to, if you will, to respond to what you heard from the Conservative leader uh, last week, uh, concerned about how you would define hate speech, saying that it would essentially be what the Prime Minister considers as speech he doesn't like to hear. So I just say to that that I'd urge all parliamentarians to look at the content of the bill and look at what we're talking about. We're talking about codifying a pre-existing definition of hatred. Hatred has been defined in Supreme Court jurisprudence for at least the last 11 years in a decision called What Caught in 2013, where it talks about something that arises to detestation and vilification. It doesn't cover things like humiliating, offensive comments, things that are insulting. There's a lot of stuff out there that will remain out there, but things that hit the level of hatred, as defined not by me, not by the Prime Minister, but by the courts of this country, that is the subject of this, of what we are trying to address through this legislation. Secondly, I would also say that who is the arbiter, right? That's a pressing question that Canadians should want to know the answer to, including CPAC viewers right now. Who's going to decide? In the main, when we're talking about hatred, that's going to be decided by the courts of this country in whom I have infinite confidence in the judiciary that represents this country. Secondly, there's going to be determinations made about the penalties to be imposed on platforms by a digital safety commission. That is not the government of Canada. That is something at arm's length from the government. And people will say, they may question, well, how are we going to ensure their arm's length and they're independent and they're objective? The head digital safety commissioner for this entire country will be voted on in the chamber that is right behind me. Members of the House of Commons will vote on that person, and that vote will be, will be also voted on in the Senate. That is Canadians, through their elected representatives, having a say in who should occupy such an important role, because it is important. 
The other message I just want to make sure is clear, Michael, is that this took a long time to get here because we've been very careful and very prudent in our approach. I am duty-bound and sworn to uphold freedom of expression under the Charter. I will always do so, particularly to protect political speech. That is fundamental in any democracy. What I will do is ensure that that protection remains robust. And what we've done is look at how that protection has played out in other parts of the world, including places like Australia and Germany, that try to take down a whole set of material across multiple categories. They learned, sometimes through their courts, that that wasn't appropriate, that was overreach. We are not implementing that approach. We are implementing something that is much more calibrated, much more careful, much more measured, and that is certainly abiding by and upholding people's freedom of expression, as it must. Well, Mr. Varani, as we say, uh, Minister, uh, this has just been tabled today. We will watch it as it makes its way through Parliament. Thank you for the time this evening. Thank you very much for having me, Michael. Well, after Minister Varani had his news conference this evening, we also heard from the NDP. Take a listen to the reaction as we heard it from NDP House Leader Peter Julian. Mr. Trudeau promised to, to table this bill within 100 days of being re-elected in 2021. It has now been 800 days and counting. And the reality is this bill is needed. We heard very moving stories from Jane and Carla today that show the importance of moving to counter online harms. And the, this is an important first step, particularly the, the aspects that touch on cracking down on child pornography the horrors of child pornography is something that the NDP welcomes. That the size and scope of the fines are also something that are, I think, an important step forward. The, the reality is many of the companies uh, online, the, the, the giants of, uh, of the web, have enormous resources, and the fines need to be in keeping with the importance of, of, uh, of bringing an end to harms online and bringing an end to the Wild West that we see on the internet. The reality of this uh, bill is that the, 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 weakest, the, the biggest weakness is the fact that algorithms are not touched. And algorithms are what delivers the hate online, the disinformation online, and the self-harm online. Time now for a look at what happened in politics today. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau wrapped up his trip to Poland today, following a weekend visit to Ukraine to mark the second anniversary of Russia's invasion. While in Warsaw, Trudeau did meet with Polish leaders, including the President Andrzej Duda and Prime Minister Donald Tusk, Trudeau defending Canada's record on defence spending, even as the Polish PM called on Western nations to do more to help Ukraine win the war. We remain the seventh largest uh, contributor uh, defense spending uh, in NATO uh, of the 31 different countries in NATO. Uh, and since we took office in 2015, we've uh, made commitments to increase our defense spending by 70%. Uh, we know there is more to do and we are doing it. During his stop in Kyiv, the third since the war began, the Prime Minister held a bilateral meeting with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky and announced a $3.2 billion security pact with Ukraine. A coalition representing black civil servants was on Parliament Hill today, calling on the federal government to stamp out racism within its workforce. The Black Canadian Civil Society Coalition's demands include increasing accountability at the Canadian Human Rights Commission and appointing a black equity commissioner as an independent officer of Parliament. All black employees want is to show up to work, serve Canadians to the best of their abilities, 
and to be recognized for their efforts, to be promoted to opportunities that they are qualified for. Basic human rights, nothing special. Among the advocacy organizations leading the charge is a group representing black public service workers in a $2.5 billion lawsuit against the federal government for alleged systemic discrimination. The federal government has tabled its long-awaited online harms bill targeting harmful digital content like child exploitation. The bill proposes amendments to the Criminal Code and the Canadian Human Rights Act, as well as laws regarding the mandatory reporting of internet child pornography. The legislation also proposes new measures to deal with non-consensual AI pornographic deepfakes, so-called revenge porn, propaganda and the promotion of hatred or violent extremism. The government says it also wants to create a new digital safety ombudsperson. Bad actors target our most vulnerable, our children. They spread vile hate and encourage impressionable people to commit violence. We know the harms we experience online can have real-world impacts with tragic, sometimes fatal, consequences. And yet so much of this goes unchecked. And finally tonight, the government House leader has introduced a procedural motion in the House of Commons. Now, if passed, it would give cabinet ministers the authority to ask the speaker to extend sitting hours as long as they have the approval of another House leader. The proposed changes would also establish protocols to prevent opposition parties from forcing marathon votes in the House. Steve McKinnon says the move would end obstruction tactics in Parliament from opposition parties and help the government pass critical legislation before the summer recess. What we're trying to do today is overcome temper tantrums by Pierre Polyev and obstruction by Conservatives that is systematic, even on things that they support. They say they support. They obstruct. They won't allow things to come to a vote. So we're going to wake up every day and we're going to work hard for Canadians and make sure that uh, in so doing that we continue to enjoy the confidence of this House and, and fulfill the mandate and the commitments that we made in the last election campaign. To the United Nations now, where Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine was addressed once again today, Canada's ambassador to the UN, Bob Ray, taking to the podium to mark the second anniversary of Moscow's aggression and to remind the world that the fighting and violations go on. Our support is as much about Ukraine as it is about fighting for the rules that underpin our world. It is about the future that we share together, all of us, a future where might does not make right, where the rule of law is upheld in everything we do, where the difference between truth and lies is clearly understood, and where the institutions that we are building together are always respected. Now, Ambassador Ray's speech follows a surprise visit by the Prime Minister to Kiev this weekend. And while there, Justin Trudeau signed a cooperation agreement on security, committing Canada to over $2.7 billion in financial assistance to Ukraine, which includes $320 million for unspecified military spending. 
this is uh, a moment for us to uh, both thank Ukraine and demonstrate our solidarity because as they stand and fight for their territorial integrity, their sovereignty, their language, their culture, their very identity and their right to choose their own future, they're also standing and fighting for the international rules-based order and the principles that uh, underpin all of our democracies. And that's why we continue to stand with Ukraine uh, with uh, everything necessary for as long as necessary. Well, joining us now is Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray. Ambassador Ray, good to see you. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you, Michael. Listen, you know, as Ukraine enters its third year of this war, it does face many challenges. We're talking about stretched resources for Ukraine, wavering support in the United States for the war effort, uh, an enemy in Russia that seems undeterred by its own losses. How do you think Canada can best support Ukraine in this fight at this point in the war? Well, I mean, I think we have to do a couple of things. The first thing is, is to do exactly what we're doing, and that is to clearly clearly indicate to President Zelensky that we're that we're there, that we're in the game, and we're serious about wanting to support Ukraine, and that we we understand that that's going to require a commitment of of money for uh, humanitarian and economic development, but also for military assistance, which we are continuing to provide. And the second thing is, I, I think we have to do a lot more to work with our NATO allies and everyone else to really to really persuade people that more has to be done. And, and I I know that's certainly true of our with our American friends. Um, we we need to do everything we can to reach out to uh, to American public opinion and 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 to the American political system and and say how important it is for all of us that we stick we stick to our plans that we that we stay together. And stay in solidarity. I, I do think this this next year is going to be critical for for all of us. And I think we've sent the right signals in in signing the um, security agreement with Ukraine. But I think we now have to have to do even now. We have to work even harder to make sure that we make more progress with ensuring that there is enough support for Ukraine. Okay, uh, you you use the word critical. Why is this next year so critical? Well, it's important to remember a couple of things. One is that Ukraine has lost a lot of its population. Uh, people have left Ukraine, not only the people who are in eastern Ukraine who were displaced by the Russians, uh, but but also the people who actually left the country, uh, mainly to Eastern Europe, but uh, but also to Canada and elsewhere. And the the population of Ukraine is under tremendous pressure. Uh, there, the economy is not doing well. They, they, they face tremendous challenges in terms of housing and education and basically the things that we need to, to be able to live reasonable lives. And, and that's putting pressure on morale in Ukraine. It's putting pressure on, on recruitment for the army. There's just a lot of things that need to be understood. We're, we're, in, a, we're in this for, for, a, a, for a tough reckoning uh, with respect to, to Russia. That's not to say that Russia isn't suffering. Russia has also suffered a loss of population. Russia has suffered far more casualties on the military side than Ukraine has. But Putin doesn't care. He doesn't care about his own people. He just saw he, he was, you know, the, the death of Alexei Navalny was, was, was an example of, of, of how little he cares for democracy and for human rights and for the decent treatment of people. So we are dealing with an enemy who doesn't, um, respond in the same way 
to human events as, as we do. We see the loss of life as tragic. We see it as something that we would desperately like to be able to change. Um, and we, we think that this aggression, the kidnapping, the all of the terrible things that Russia has done um, have created great hardship for the people of Russia, as well as for the people of Ukraine. Um, so I don't think it's to say that it's, it's, it's all bad news for Ukraine. It's not. It's Ukraine has done remarkably well to have been able to survive the onslaught from Russia. But we have to make sure that we take steps, not simply to be on the defense, but to go be able to, you know, get land back and to regain some momentum in the, in the war. And I think that's critically important. Mm -hmm. So so critically important, as you say, but as you stage yourself, though, here you have in Vladimir Putin, a leader that does not react the way others have historically when it comes to Moscow and this and Russia. So where does that leave the United Nations? Because, you know, time and again, we continue to hear that Russia has violated the rule based order that has guided international relations for decades. But is that being punished in any way that has any meaning to Vladimir Putin if he doesn't react like others have? Or is Russia essentially creating a new normal for the world to adapt to? Well, I think that's the the risk is that if we if we're not able to succeed in holding Putin accountable for what he's done, that this means it's going to be a heyday for dictators all around the world, and we need to understand that. That's when Canadians sometimes say to me, I get letters and emails from people saying, uh, you know, haven't we done enough? And, and my answer is no, we haven't because we can't be satisfied and we can't rest uh, until there is a, a reckoning of this situation and not just a, a defense of Ukraine, but a victory for Ukraine. And I think increasingly it's important for us to talk, to talk this language and to be very candid about what the implications are of a victory for, for, for Vladimir Putin. Now, I, I don't take at face value you know, if people say, well, Putin isn't worried about anything, I, I, I think he is. I think he's, I think he's desperate. And I think a lot of the measures that he's taking are a sign of his desperation. But I think we have to keep pushing and pushing even harder than, than we've been pushing so far. Is the United Nations own viability a challenge here if Putin continues this war, essentially unpunished by the world, if Russia can, on the Security Council, continue to veto resolutions, does it essentially create an existential crisis for the United Nations? Well, I mean, I think the, I think the UN is, has been challenged since its inception. Uh, I mean, we have to recognize that the UN was set up at the end of the Second World War, before the Cold War really began. But as soon as the Cold War began, the 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 powers of the world clearly made a decision that the, the common power and the ability to enforce the law was not going to be given to the UN. And that's been our dilemma ever since. That's the dilemma we've been, we've been living with for, for 75 years. We, we need to give more collective ability to the UN to enforce the laws on climate change, the laws on biodiversity, all of the laws we all agree this is the direction we need to be going in as a world, but we're not giving the UN the means and the ability to enforce the laws that are in place. And nowhere is this clearer than in peace and security because of the peculiar structure where we've given, we gave, we did collectively vetoes to five countries, one of which was the Soviet Union, the other one of which is China, the United States, the UK, and France. And with that veto power, the Security Council has been 
I think the delicate way to put it, severely limited in its ability to respond. The, the, the truth or the closer to the truth statement would be it's left the Security Council paralyzed in the face of, of uh, flagrant uh, breaches of international law. You know, over the weekend, uh, the prime minister, as you know, was in Kyiv, uh, and while there, he acknowledged this fear among Ukrainians that if there is, at the end of the day, negotiated peace between Russia and Ukraine right now, uh, that detente would only give Russia a chance to regroup and try its invasion again. And to repeat, this is the fear amongst Ukrainians. So does that mean a negotiated end to this war is seen as a, a no-go right now? How do you negotiate with Putin? How do you negotiate with a guy who says he wants to to take the whole take over the whole country? And I think that's the critical problem. Uh, you know, we tried this in the years before the Second World War, saying, "Well, let's make peace with Hitler." Uh, he really only just wants a little piece of this part of the Poland or that part of Czechoslovakia. Why don't we just give him those little chunks? But the chunks were just the appetizer. And I'm afraid that what we're seeing in Ukraine is Eastern Ukraine and Crimea are just the appetizer for Russia. And so we have to be realistic. We have to be tough-minded about who we're dealing with. We're not dealing with a person who has a great track record in keeping his agreements or with somebody who has any particular belief in the rule of law or who understands what it means uh, to not kidnap kids and, and do the terrible crimes against humanity that have been committed. So I'm not one of those people who's lining up to say, let's make a deal. Um, I, I don't believe that, that it, it makes sense unless there's a dramatic turn in, in the way in which Russia presents itself to the world and say that let's make a deal with Putin. I mean, I, I think that's nuts, frankly. Uh, Ambassador Ray, you know, we're quickly running out of time here, but, but before you go, I, I do want to also ask your thoughts about the mass resignation that we saw uh, in the West Bank today, the Palestinian Authority Prime Minister, along with his government, uh, stepping down. How significant is this development, do you think, in terms of reviving hopes for a two-state solution in the Middle East? Well, I think it's been a, a long time coming. I think that when a number of us were expecting there to be some something in this direction, um, and I do think that, I mean, in order for there to be two states, there have to be two effective governments. And I don't think anybody can say that in the last while the Palestinian Authority has been has been able to, to do a great job. I, I mean, I do think there are serious financial issues for the authority and all sorts of other questions. I'm not simply pointing fingers at anybody. I'm just saying you need to have effective governance with experienced, practical people in charge in order to give people confidence on the other side that yeah this is this is in the this is in the cards this is going in the right direction so we'll just have to see what emerges in the next phase from a, a new potential uh, new personnel in, in in the government of the Palestinian Authority but there's a long route to go uh, but two states is really the only effective way to ensure a long-term peace in the Middle East because going back to the, the early days again after the Second World War. That's when we, we all just agreed that there have to be two states. Um, and initially it was the Arab groups who rejected uh, any any Israeli state, any possibility for Israel to be self-governing. 
But we need Palestinian self-governance, and we need Israeli sovereignty, and we need Palestinian sovereignty in order to be able to create two effective states. But sovereignty implies being able to do things. And that, I think, is the steps that we need to see. And I think we have to do everything we can to support the evolution of that development. Uh, and I know that's the position the government is, is taking very clearly now. Ambassador Barbara, again, always appreciate the time. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Good to talk to you. And that is our program for this Monday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow. But up next, Esté Béjean avec l'Essentiel.